Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast contains some descriptions of physical violence and psychological distress. Please use discretion. On March 27, 2008, Bashar Assad was getting ready for a big day. The arrival of presidents and sheikhs of some of the Arab countries to Syria. For decades, Arab League summits have been marked by rare moments of unity and even more moments of divisions, just like this summit here in Damascus. Arab states... Assad was keen to use the event as an opportunity to whitewash his reputation after his regime was accused of ordering the assassination of the Prime Minister of Lebanon, Rafiq al-Hariri, in 2005. Leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan and other countries said they wouldn't participate in the event. But Assad went on with hosting the Arab summit anyway. To him, This event signaled his comeback to the Arab arena to show them that they were wrong about him. The situation back then is similar to what he is trying to do now. To rejoin the Arab League this year after his expulsion due to the crimes he committed and is still perpetrating against his people, my people. Little did Assad know that right at that moment in 2008, something extraordinary was happening inside Sidnaya prison, the impact of which is still resonating today. Riyadh says it felt like... The longest riot in the world. From message heard in the Syria campaign, this is Behind the Sun. I'm Nadia Al-Bukai. Thirty kilometers away from Damascus, the capital of Syria, Riyadh and Diab at Sidnaya were about to weather a lengthy period of turbulence and chaos in the prison. The detainees of Sidnaya would do things no one in the Syrian regime ever thought were possible. The Syrian regime's response to these events is just one example of how historically the regime has resorted to excessive violence to crush any form of dissent and evaded accountability. The reason why what happened in Sidnaya in 2008 is so important is because it led to the complete transformation of Sidnaya prison. This event turned this prison upside down. Its impact endures until today for the people who are detained there or for those who were detained after 2011. Before we jump into details about this event, let's recap a bit. Last episode, we heard from Diab and Riyadh. We learned from them about how the regime and its intelligence services used fear and violence to submit the Syrians to Assad's will. The regime created Sidnaya in the 80s to detain anyone who would dare to oppose Assad's rule. In 2008, Sidnaya was still achieving its purpose, and Riyadh and Diab were still there along with thousands of other detainees. But the problem was that at that time, the prison director, Colonel Ali Khairbek, was making their lives as hellish as possible, day by day. There was no food, there was no water, there was no electricity. There was just uh, the torture, they came and tortured prisoners. 
Between late 2007 and March 2008, he expanded the degree of torture to new levels. The food got worse and there were also water and electricity cuts. No medical care and no visitations. Nothing. The situation got to the point of driving several people to think that life had no purpose. Some people started thinking, this isn't a life. Nobody can take it. This Iron Fist approach created anger and desperation. And that's not the purpose the regime intended for Sidnaya. Sidnaya was there to create fear and obedience. And this point is important. On 27 March 2008, in Sidnaya's red building where all the political prisoners were held, a small tooth was going to be the catalyst for everything to come. A detainee had finally seen the prison dentist after a long struggle with unbearable tooth pain. But the dentist didn't treat him, he just removed the tooth. When the man went back to his cell, he was in agony and turned the lights on to go to the cell restroom. Once one of the guards noticed, he went to the cell and argued with its detainees, demanding that they name whoever lit the room. The prisoners didn't comply. Shaken by their solidarity and defiance, the guard crossed all possible social lead lines and went on cursing. At this point, the already very upset prisoners started to rebel. They began loudly banging on the doors in the hopes of breaking them down. When the guard came back with reinforcements, it didn't stop the disobedience, though. It spread its intensity in the entire cell block. To contain the situation, a middle-ranking officer promised the prisoners that he would punish the soldier who started the upheaval. The prisoners believed him, and everyone went back to their beds. But the anger remained. Ali Khairbek, the prison director, had a different view of things. When he knew about the argument, he considered their defiance an insult to his authority. So, he resorted to the Syrian dictatorship's playbook. I'm talking about the standard and often repeated maneuvers and tricks used by regime officials to control the Syrian people and to crush the slightest sign of dissent among them. These tactics are well documented in countless news, human rights and Western intelligence reports. As for Ali Khairbek, he decided to use an all-time favorite move from the playbook, vicious violence and collective punishment. He had always believed in violence. Even the prison guards were scared of him and his punishments. The next morning, he went to the cell block with tens of soldiers, determined to teach the detainees a lesson. He began to insult the whole group, telling them that they didn't have the right to speak this way to the soldier, that the soldier was better than them, that the soldier's combat boots were worthy and more honorable than them. He promised to punish them immediately, and the soldiers began opening cell after cell in the block, each cell containing between 10 and 15 people, and extracting prisoners one by one to beat and torture them before sending them to solitary confinement. The torture was extreme and with no mercy. One of those being punished managed to hit back at the soldiers. When his fellow inmates in the corridor saw the battle start between that prisoner and the guards, 
They immediately joined the clash and the prison director fled the scene along with his lieutenants, leaving most of his guards behind. And there, the prisoners took their revenge. They tied the soldiers, took their keys and opened all the cells in the block. So that entire block erupted out of their control. After taking complete control of their block, they opened the doors of the other cell blocks. The entire prison was in a state of revolt. When they reached us and opened our door, of course I had to participate. We felt like enough with this prison. We had to get out. We had to tell people what was happening to us here. We went to the rooftop of the prison. Of course, the guards were firing into the air. They weren't shooting directly at us on that day. And we weren't afraid. We were on the rooftop and we tried to light a fire. But we didn't have the materials to do it. You have nothing. You have your blanket that covers you. If you burn it, you die out of cold. So, there's nothing to burn. We tried to make a big flag. But similarly, there was no way to sew things together to make a flag or anything. When the guards tried to storm the prison again, they failed. And now, the prison director resorted to the playbook of tricks again. When your forces fail, recruit thugs to do your dirty work. He tried to forcibly retake the political prisoners' blocks with the help of inmates convicted of criminal offenses from other sections of the prison. The prison administration told them that the political detainees were terrorists and traitors, enemies of the state and the president, and that putting them in their place would be a good deed to the country, and Syria would never forget its coat good people. They were also told that if they succeeded or managed to control the uprising, their sentences might be reconsidered, reduced substantially, or might even get them pardons. Of course they failed, because the state of fury we were in was so extreme that 10 people wouldn't be able to stop any of us. We wanted to reach the main gates and get out. Enough! What happens, happens. Of course, this didn't work because the prison was so heavily fortified. They started to attack us with tear gas. They put tanks and military personnel transport vehicles at the gates of the prison. All the while, over the megaphones, they called to us, don't try to get out. Don't try to get out. All the while, somewhere in his official quarters, I can imagine Bashar Assad practicing his speech to impress the visiting and absent Arab leaders. If this news got out and his counterparts knew of the riot in the prison, it would be bad publicity for him. He would be perceived as weak. And to Assad and his regime, they cannot be publicly embarrassed. So he asked his top lieutenants to end this matter as quietly as possible. And here came another official trick. Act as if you are listening. We had taken complete control of the prison. Two floors of it. The first and the second. The prison is three floors. The prison administration asked us to form a committee from the wise and rational ones among us. They told us, let's talk and see what your demands are so as to resolve the problem peacefully. You didn't get out, so we won't hurt or punish anyone. We want to resolve this problem and turn the page. So, the prisoners formed a committee of three people. 
We had a friend in the committee whose name was Nizar Rastanawi. Please remember that name, Nizar Rastanawi. We will get back to him later. The committee went down and spoke with the prison director. Of course, there were so many officers there, all kinds of military and intelligence officers. There was one demand. We want to talk to Bashar al-Assad. We don't want to talk with you or the intelligence. We want to deliver our demands to Bashar al-Assad himself. We want to tell him what's happening to us. In fact, there was a representative of Bashar al-Assad. His name was Munir Adanov, who would later become the deputy chief of staff of the army and was a close aide to Assad. Adanov told the committee that Assad was not available at the moment to receive their call. He was welcoming VIPs from around the Arab world for the summit. After that, he scolded Ali Khairbek for being responsible for the escalation and ordered him to fulfill all the prisoners' requests. Their demands were to restart visitations, cease the torture, give them fair trials, the ability to buy clothes, food and books, and to allow them to do activities. Basically, to make Sidnaya less inhumane and more like a normal prison. And indeed, they implemented all of our demands, beyond what we could have imagined. They permitted us to bring books, they allowed us to bring food. Everything we wanted, they gave it to us. And more than this, there were some prisoners who did wooden handicrafts, like making prayer beads, or picture frames, or canes for old people. Imagine, they brought them tools they never would have dreamed of. They even brought them some little sharp tools, even some kitchen knives. They gave them more than knives, though. Instead of the old mattresses the prisoners used to sleep on, they gave them military beds, something they would regret later. But I will get to that. We considered this a victory. But we were cautious that this victory wouldn't last long. The guards didn't fully return. They were some, but a very light presence. They were just bringing food to our doors and we'd take care of everything else. Even the doors of the cells were not locked on us anymore. Guards were totally out of the equation now. If there was a problem and a guard took a prisoner to solitary confinement, the prisoners would go down and get him back out saying, we wouldn't want our comrade to sleep alone. It happened a few times. It was impossible for the situation to continue like this. It started to feel more like a daycare or a boarding school than a prison. Even boarding schools would have more discipline. This response was to serve one purpose only, to contain the riot and to avoid any potential embarrassment to Assad during his long-awaited summit. And it did succeed in that. But on the other hand, it was a failure for the regime's men, like the Mukhabarat leaders and Ali Khairbek, the now sidelined prison director. For the impatient regime men, it was time for another favorite move, deception. For 100 days after the riot, Sidnaya detainees were visited by members of parliament, intelligence officers, religious leaders, and high-ranking bureaucrats. During these visits, there were promises that a security committee would come to study the prisoners' files and that there was a possibility of receiving pardons by July. 
On the 4th of July, prison officers and guards circled Sidnaya delivering an important message. They were asking us, please, just close the doors. Tomorrow, the security committee will come and check on the prison. Let's avoid embarrassment for us and for you. It might reflect badly on us all if the committee sees you undisciplined. Just close the doors. And tomorrow, you will meet the committee one by one. And you can say whatever you want to them. But now, be disciplined. The prisoners complied, and everyone in Sidnaya went back to their cells and handed the keys to the guards. Tomorrow was a moment of truth. The committee was a lie. On the 5th of July, 2008, at dawn, in each cell block in Sidnaya's red building, where all the political prisoners were, there were hundreds of armed soldiers. The deception maneuver succeeded. Now they get back to their favorite tactic, violence, again. It was a horrific sight. 300 soldiers opening the door of each cell and just stomping on people. Stomp, stomp, stomping and breaking bones and beating. A horrific, horrific scene. The voices of people being beaten, their bones breaking by having their legs stomped on, absolutely terrifying. It was crushing, literally. They were crushing people. Because the guards were doing this cell by cell, That gave time for the others, locked and trapped waiting for their turn. They felt that this was the day they would die. The detainees' survival instincts kicked in. We felt they were coming to kill us, and we refused to surrender. We were like a pack of wolves or wild animals that have to gather in large numbers to fight back. Suddenly, something strange happened. A voice would flip the situation completely. We heard somebody saying, break the military beds and use the main bars to break the walls. Gather in one room. Don't let them enter as 300, with you alone or with just 10 inmates. If you are wondering where this voice came from, the answer is the air duct. The ventilation hatches had been their social media and communication channel all the time. Prisoners would sometimes send stuff through them, like a towel, a blanket, or even underwear. But that day, only voices mattered the most. We could hear other voices from the air ducts. Every four cells shared a ventilation system throughout the prison. And remember, it's three floors, so the voice came from these air ducts. So, who knows who said that first? But people started to copy it seeing it as a good idea. So, people throw out the prison were repeating, open the walls and get out. You couldn't say this was planned, because if it was planned by the prisoners, it would have been even more successful. The prisoners instinctively started to hit the walls and break them. Guards were in cell one and two. I was in cell four. So the breaking operation was literally unbelievable. Maybe if somebody listened to us, they would say that this person is lying or exaggerating. But truly, we made a hole in the wall within 10 minutes. The wall was penetrated. And the same happened in other cells. And through these holes, we started to jump to the next cell and the next until we reached cell 10. 
Now all the prisoners in the cell block are gathered in one cell. We were 100 wolves. Come, let them enter now. They didn't even wait for the guards to come to them. They broke the last wall and went out to the block corridor. 100 desperate, fed-up men with their survival instinct at its peak, facing around triple the amount of regime soldiers in the corridor. They were stunned. 100 people attacking them as if one man. And the retinees had metal bars, while they had wooden batons and broken tree branches. Here is where the equation was flipped. There was a battle. And as usual, the mid-ranking officers immediately escape. Actually, they don't always flee like this, but most of the time they do. They left the soldiers and fled. The soldier without his leader is lost. He doesn't know what to do. There are no orders. So, at this point, the soldiers too became detainees. The operation Riyadh and Diab's cell block undertook was repeated throughout the prison. The prisoners were able to take hostages of high-ranking officers and guards and used the phones of these hostages to call their families to tell them about what was happening. The mayhem spread further. Some inmates started fires in different places in the prison to alert the world about what was happening. The smoke was visible to the neighboring villages. Other people tried to escape the building. And then the shooting started. The guards randomly shot live ammunition everywhere and at everyone. After about 12 hours, at around 5 p.m., the shooting stopped, but the extent of the day's aftermath was huge. The prison burned. The bakery was burned. Some of the storages were in total chaos. The soldiers tried desperately to storm our block, and their attempts failed. So around 5 or 6 p.m., they started to call us from the megaphones to stop the chaos, saying, that if we did, they would stop firing at us. They said that they had orders from their commanders to stop firing because they'd like to resolve the situation peacefully. So let's talk. The news got to the highest levels of Assad regime and they ordered all the military branches to go to Sednaya and stop the situation from escalating. Under no circumstances did they want a word of what was happening to escape. An iron curtain was imposed on the area. They cut the electricity off in the prison and brought jamming devices, leaving the mobile phones in the hands of the prisoners useless. Inside the prison, some of the radical Islamist factions used this chaos to create their own courts in parts of the prison. They started to enforce their own version of justice, a vindictive and violent one. In the prison, there were some Islamists who had a different vision. Some were with Al-Qaeda. Some had been volunteer fighters, Mujahideen, in Iraq. And there was tension between these two radical branches. Their victims weren't only the guards. <sighs> Do you remember Nizar Sanawi, who I mentioned earlier? The one who was part of the first prisoner's delegation to negotiate with Assad's representative. Nizar was a civil engineer and a prominent human rights activist in Hama city in central Syria. He was sentenced to four years in prison by the state security court after a member of Mukhabara testified that he overheard a private conversation Nizar was having with another person. Quote, 
spreading false news and insulting the President of the Republic. The term was supposed to be only three years, but Faiz and Nouri, the same judge who sentenced Riyadh and Diab, added an extra year to the sentence. Al-Nuri didn't like that Nizar had refused to stand up while hearing the verdict. At the time of the riot, Nizar was months away from being released from Sidnaya. Nizar was approached by a man I didn't recognize. The man beat him up and insulted him. And then two other masked people came and took him away. Those people who took him away were very big, athletic men. So they took him and were beating him along the way. These two people were clearly other prisoners. Not guards. Guards wear military uniforms. So I followed them and tried to rescue him. Nizar was a known person to most of the prison as a secular and outspoken intellectual. The radical Islamists didn't like him because of his beliefs. I tried to demand, leave him alone. Why are you taking him? At this point, the battle became between me and other prisoners. One of them beat me up, and two other people came and beat me up too and threatened me. They had the middle bars with them. They didn't really speak, but it was clear that they wanted me to shut up. There were another two people who tried to come to help me, to help me rescue him from them, but we couldn't. They attacked us again. They were a big group, around seven or eight people, and we were just three. They took Nizar downstairs, and Diab followed them to see where they were taking him. It was a closed plot, not an open one. There was a pair of prisoners sort of guarding the block. And they told me, if you want to follow him, we don't know what will happen to you inside. Go back. I retreated, but I was still cautious, waiting for the situation to calm down and until these guys might leave so I could go in and see what happened. Around 2 p.m., the place was open again and nobody was there. The prisoners who were guarding the cell block were no longer there. I went inside and I found him lying dead on the floor. He was there with five other prisoners. All had been killed. The other five were believed to be informers among the prisoners. The Islamic groups came and they attacked me too. And they tried to kill me because my belief somehow different from them. But Riyadh wasn't alone. His friends saved him from imminent death. There was a group of inmates who went down to defend Riyadh and stand by him. Some of these people were Salafis as well, honestly. And they told the factions who came to attack Riyadh, if you came to hurt him, you'll have to get through us first. They told them, the person you are trying to hurt helped us a lot and did us a lot of favors in Adra prison before he came to Sidnaya. In a way, there were many people who liked and respected us. There were people who knew that we would never hurt them, however bad our disagreements became. Luckily, Riyadh survived, but Nizar and others didn't. 
I try to imagine what kind of hate they had for Nizar. What enticed them to do that to him. I went through everything written about him everywhere, trying to understand, and I couldn't find anything. And I also can't help but think, if the judge Faiz and Nuri hadn't added an additional year to Nizar's sentence, he would have been alive. If the regime hadn't put Nizar in detention in the first place, because of a private conversation, he would have been alive. He was a good man and always talking in a low voice and asking for rights. He was a human rights defender. And after uh, hours, we heard that they killed him. Why they killed him, I don't know. He was like water, clear. I like Lazar. They killed him for nothing. Nizar's killing created a crisis inside the prison, even among the radical Islamists themselves. There were many among the radical Islamists who were against his killing. In Sidnaya prison on that day, July 5th, 2008, 30 people were killed. Until this moment, it is said that only perhaps two of the dead bodies were returned by the regime to their families. Nizar was not one of them. In the early hours of July 6, 2008, General Talat Mahfouz picked up his phone. The caller was President Bashar Assad himself. Mahfouz was then a military police branch director, and before that, he was the director of Tadmer Prison, the terrible prison I had mentioned at the start of this podcast. The same place that Riyadh, as a young man, had described in a letter leading to his detention for years. As a loyal son of the regime, Mahfouz knew all the regime's ways, and his choice tactic, division. The detainees were now in complete control of the prison. They even had their own detainees, around 1,200 soldiers. And now the negotiations began between the regime and the committee. A new committee was formed. The prisoners' committee tried to resolve the situation with no more violence. Enough. He wanted to resolve the situation peacefully and to not return to the same demeaning conditions. Verbal abuse, the beating, the torture, etc. A roadmap agreement to resolve the crisis was reached. The agreement was that the prisoners would give the detained soldiers back. And in exchange, the regime would reopen the electrical and water supply lines, bring food and evacuate the wounded. But it didn't hold up because some detainees didn't trust the regime. The families of the detainees went directly to the Shreen Military Hospital in Damascus. When they saw the ambulances and learned they were carrying injured people from Sidnaya, they protested in front of the hospital for a week, demanding to visit the wounded to check on their loved ones. They couldn't go near the prison due to the entrenchment of all the military forces around it. The regime responded to the protests by closing the hospital to public access for two weeks. Some of the detainees who were sent for treatment during the riot were killed at the hospital. There were people who went to the hospital and never came back. 
That issue raised a great many questions among the prisoners. Where are the people who went to the hospital? We want to see the people who were sent to the hospital. To stop the questions, the prison administration took two people from the prisoners' committee to Tashreen Military Hospital to see the detainees who had been hospitalized. When these two men from the committee went there, the hospitalized detainees told them, don't go back without us, please. So they brought the hospitalized detainees back with them. The people who had been hospitalized told us unbelievable, horrifying stories. The torture that they were subjected to in Tishreen Military Hospital was even worse than the torture they faced in Sidnaya prison. They used to piss on their wounds, mocking them. One of the hospitalized prisoners was approached by a doctor or a nurse while he was blindfolded and told that they wanted to put disinfectant on his wounds. Another came and said, I'll put the disinfectant for him, and he pissed on his wound instead, telling him, this is the best disinfectant, this is the best treatment for these people, and this is just a mild example. Back to Sidnaya again. The hospital crisis increased divisions between the detainees. We, I mean people like me and yeah, we were between the bullet of the army and the Salafix group. It became a state of siege, July to December, five months in a state of the most brutal type of siege. Sometimes we drank rainwater during the fall. We'd break the gutters to drink the water from them. Too many detainees got sick and too many detainees were on the brink of losing their minds. On the 6th of December 2008, the regime tried to storm the prison and failed. However, Talat Mahfouz came up with another idea. If you can't get inside the prison, flush the prisoners out. He positioned snipers on cranes and fire engines around the prison with orders to fire at will whenever they saw a prisoner. The army broke outside the wall to see inside the building itself and began to shouting the prisoners from the outside. But we came inside the cells safely because when you show even a bit of your body, they will shut you immediately. There was fear. We're always waiting a bullet come and uh, kill us, one of us. And in fact, yes, they killed, I saw. The shooting was so random, anyone inside the building that appeared on the sniper's telescope was shot immediately. Whoever got wounded had to be left to die in agony because there was no kind of medical treatment available. The pressure was so high. And then the massacre started. Between the 6th and the 26th of December, they killed 100 prisoners. We reached the level of thinking, so Talat Mahfouz really succeeded with this. The prison could have remained steadfast, but the foundations for steadfastness were not there. The foundations were too weak. You couldn't remain steadfast with one spoon of rice per day from the remaining supplies of food. Many people were not involved with any of the bloodshed. I am a person 
who was not involved in any of it. I wanted to get out. I wanted to finish with this crisis. So the regime indeed succeeded with this policy of breaking our unity and our power. And people gave up, basically. It was Talat Mahfouz's moment of victory. He had proved himself to Assad's representative and brother-in-law, Asif Shokat, the head of military intelligence. Shokat used to go there to check on the operation and interrogate prisoners. Mahfouz stood proudly while his men spoke over the megaphone, telling the detainees about their surrender terms. Take your belongings and exit the prison. All the prisoners complied except for 35 people who refused to leave. Everyone started packing their clothes and went out, but Riyadh didn't want his clothes. I told Diab, okay, I will let my clothes and just give me the books. I will take the books with me outside, two big uh, bag books. And when I came outside and guard came to search me, he just saw books. He said, what is this? I said, books. What? What? Books. He said, it is forbidden to take books with you. I said, oh, oh why? I let my clothes inside the prison and I carried the books with me. Why you are forbidden these books? He said, okay. Over the course of these events, between March and December 2008, the regime tried repeatedly to put an end to the riots. It also tried to conceal all traces of what happened by circulating Sidnaya inmates between prisons. The regime kept shuffling the prisoners for weeks after their surrender, so that it would be hard for anyone to figure out the numbers of the casualties and the prisoners' count. Yeah, I was uh, in this time in the in the white building and they brought Dieppe again from the Adra prison to Sednaya. When they returned us, there were still 35 people who had refused to get out and surrender. So on January 9, 2009, the regime stormed the prison and killed them all. The regime worked on Sednaya's renewal 24-7. Repairs, demolition and rebuilding. There was no such thing as sleep. The objective was to reshape Sidnaya forever. After three months, they completed their work. They created the dark abyss that is Sidnaya today. It was a terrifying sight. The walls had become metal, and it's as if you are being imprisoned in a tin of sardines. This is the most accurate description of the cells of Sidnaya at that point. The design was so unique. Even the air ducts had been closed off. It's death. It's death. And some people really immediately got sick. Some people got tuberculosis. Some people got hepatitis. We weren't seeing the sun. We were totally locked down all the time. And after a while, from time to time, they would allow external visits. They made the visits so short and so random that no one could track the real tally of what had happened during the first and second riot. Talat Mahfouz vowed that what happened before shall not happen again. Until now, no one knows the true number of people killed in the riots. No one was held accountable for what happened in Sidnaya between March 2008 and January 2009. We're sure if we made it out alive from this prison, 
May God watch over the people who come after us in what they were about to go through. So I was grateful for the presence of Riyadh and other friends. I mean, who knows who would make it out alive, frankly. There was a general feeling that we all could die anytime those days. And it was a big possibility. I think we all felt the same way. So for instance, it was a good thing that there was Riyadh to inform my family if anything happened to me, to comfort them and speak with them, and the same thing for me. Assad used the playbook and got away with what he did to the prisoners in Sidnaya in 2008. His regime did not tolerate the prisoners' demands for humane treatment. And when the dust settled, the regime blamed them for everything. Assad controlled the narrative as he worked to improve his relations with the West. In fact, three U.S. senators, including John Kerry, met with Assad one month after the brutal end of the riot in February 2009. Assad had blocked all forms of independent reporting on the events, stonewalled his men from accountability, and exported a story that he was, quote, a power broker in the region who's fighting extremism, a pillar of safety and stability in the region who's fighting terrorism. Today, some countries are restoring ties with Assad and even consider him as part of the solution. But looking at what continues to happen in my home country, this could not be further from truth. Assad is not a pillar of safety and stability. No one I know feels safe. Next week on Behind the Sun, we will continue with Diab and Riyadh's story and find out how Assad used Sidnaya again to try to crush the revolution in 2011. You will meet Khofran and hear about her journey searching for her missing brothers. Behind the Sun is a co-production between Message Heard and the Syria Campaign in collaboration with the Association of Detainees and the Missing, ADMSB, and the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, SJAC, under its project On the Margins No More. The series is written and produced by Mohammed Farouk. Thank you to Ronim, Ola, Sarah, Maiz and Rory from the Syria campaign and Raha from ADMSB for helping put this series together. Voice over for Diab was presented by Mahmoud Nawara. Editing, mixing and sound design was done by Yerik Zaba and Ivan Eastley. Additional production support from Molly Freeman, Tom Biddle and Lincoln van der Westhazen. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Milo Evans. My name is Nigel Bukai.